The Modern Witches Confluence is hosting its fourth annual educational gathering from October 28th through October 31st online. The Modern Witches community is creating a sacred container for those witch curious, witch identifying, and magically minded to authentically connect and learn. Join this radical community of mystical beings for three days of workshops and rituals from Phenomenal Witches. Welcome to Moonbeaming, a podcast about magic, creativity, the tarot, lunar living, and more. I'm your host, Sarah Faith Godestiner, and I'm so happy you're here. Hello and welcome back to Moonbeaming, my dears. I am thrilled to be with you here today because we've got a special guest and we are talking about a four-letter word, as my mother would say, work, work, W-O-R-K. Not cute work, like drag queen work, but work, W-O-R-K. Did you know that work simply means to do. That's what it means. That's like the entomology of the word. Boy, has it become loaded. Has it not? Has it not? I think that now more than ever is the time to interrogate and reflect upon our relationships to work and what we think it means and how it could be different. I don't think we've ever lived in a time where more people are questioning work, questioning their purpose, and questioning the system of capitalism. You know, it's made up. Humans made it up. And if you're sort of wondering why things are this way and really wanting to figure out a different way, you're not alone, you know? Because the concept of work and the system of work is made up by humans, humans can change it. We can. I believe we can. The bar for being treated ethically and compensated well is so, so low when it comes to work in the United States of America. And this has to change. It just simply has to change. If you are a witch who is thinking about using your amazing magical powers to make more money and work less, If you're someone who is really wanting a change in career or in schedule or in your framework, if you're burnt out and are now ready to not be burnt out, this all makes sense. You are right where you need to be. I also want to acknowledge the tons of people right now, the millions of people right now who are unemployed and the millions of people right now who don't work, who are on disability or who are sick or have a very important job called raising children that society doesn't see as a job and so doesn't pay accordingly. So I want to like shout out all of those. I feel like this concept of work extends really to anyone, regardless of whether you are reporting live for duty at 9 a.m. or whatever it is, right? I also think it's important to name like we don't have to love work. And I think it's important to parse out where we've identified or over identified with work and start to unravel it. And I think it's important to name that we are living in a system. This is not an individual issue. It is a systemic one. And so I think to think you can solve it all on your own or think it's all your fault or I don't know, put put all the onus on, on yourself when really it's about many people changing things together. You know, I just wanted to call that out. Uh, I wanted to call that out. And in my opinion, knowing what you are responsible for and can do and knowing what you truly cannot do alone is imperative when we're thinking about these bigger issues, right? We cannot One person cannot change a system. America would love to have us believe that, but it's not true. Even people in leadership are able to do their job 
because millions of people elected them and they have a huge team and a huge staff and are not, they are not doing it alone, you know? My guest today has dedicated much of her life to interrogating and questioning work, systems of work in the United States. My guest today is the one and only Sarah Jaffe. Sarah is the author of Work Won't Love You Back, How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Exhausted, and Alone, and of Necessary Trouble, Americans in Revolt, both from Bold Type Books. She is a Type Media Center reporting fellow and an independent journalist covering the politics of power from the workplace to the streets. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, The Nation, The Guardian, The Washington Post, The New Republic, The Atlantic, and many other publications. She is the co-host with Michelle Chen of Descent Magazine's Belabored podcast, as well as a columnist at the Progressive and New Labor Forum. Okay. Wow. I knew as soon as I read Work Won't Love You Back, I wanted to interview Sarah. I mean, the minute I saw the book, I mean, the title of the book, I was like, okay, yeah, (laughs) this is great. Let's get into all of this, you know? Uh, So luckily, I was able to get in touch with her, and it turned out she actually knew of who I was, and that was awesome because it was easy for us then to make a date to sit and chat. And I highly suggest you get the book. If you would like to go deeper, get some context around work and work culture in our country and think differently about work altogether. And today in our conversation, we get into a lot of this. We talk about some of the basics, the the overriding themes of Sarah's book, We talk about what she learned from writing the book, why she is fascinated by exploring systems of power, and we also talked about what we can do to transform our relationships to work and how Sarah has changed her relationship to work uh, through her work in the the world. Uh, I always like to play this game, you know, it's like saying one word a lot. Every time I say work, you can take a little a little bit of your favorite tincture, you know, to get you like buzzing on milky oat tops or something like that, right? So I'm like, how many times am I going to say the W word in this conversation and in, in this intro? Anywho, friends, I loved this conversation. We covered a lot of ground. I know you're going to love it too. So without further ado, here it is. Hello, everyone. I am here today with a very, very special guest. I am here with the journalist, the writer, Sarah Jaffe. Sarah, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I was hoping you could just introduce yourself in your own words to the listeners. Yeah. Hi, I'm Sarah. Um, I'm a labor journalist, which means I write about work and the various ways in which it sucks. And I wrote a whole book about that, which is called Work Won't Love You Back, How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Exhausted, and Alone, which is about exactly what it says it's about. Um, And it came out earlier this year. And um, yeah, that's kind of the important stuff. So when I was reading your bio on the back of work won't love you back, I liked uh, I liked the call out the words um, covering the politics of power. And so I wanted to talk, I wanted to begin by talking about how you define the politics of power. What is that to you? Yeah, I think the reason that I went with that after like, you know, trying various different one line descriptions of like who I am and what I do for a very long time. um, I hit on that one because the workplace, first of all, is like a huge place where people most directly experience sort of hierarchical power relations, exploitation, oppression, um, Mm. all of these things that we talk about in various political terms, hit us most directly most of the time in the workplace. 
But of course, the workplace is not the only place that we experience these things. And it's not the only place. In fact, a lot of people don't think of it as a place at all where we can challenge these things. So um, it was a way to sort of talk about the fact that I write about work. I write about social movements. Every now and then you can twist my arm and make me write about elections. Um, and sometimes <laughs> I also write about pop culture and film and books and things that are less sort of obviously political but I'm always looking for the threads of how power operates in our lives and sort of what it is. And that's what I want to know. Like, what? how do you define power? Because I've been thinking a lot about this as well. And like, what, what, what is it that, what is it you're trying to kind of wrap your hands around as you study this? Mm -hmm. and, and yeah, because this is what you've been doing for right, 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 quite yeah. a while. So I'm sort yeah. of curious, like where you're at with it today. Yeah, we sort of talk about power in a, in a lot of different ways, but the way I, I think about it is often there's sort of two kinds of power, right? And we talk about like having power over someone, right? Like your boss has power over you. Um, the president of the United States has power over you. The cops have power over you. Um, but then there's also like when we talk about having power to do something and that comes hand in hand a lot of the times with do, building that with other people. So, you know, the way that that ordinary people have power is by getting a lot of us together most of the time, right? Whether that's forming a union in your workplace or it's getting hundreds of thousands of people in the streets for Black Lives Matter marches. Um, the thing that we have to do to overcome the sort of institutional power that bears down on us is to get more of us together to push back. So that's yes. how we think about it. And obviously, you know, you can get into really wanky stuff and talk about Foucault and all of these other ways that that power sort of gets woven through our lives and exerted. Um, I can and talk about sort of the way that ideas have power and wield those power on us. Um, mm. I've been talking about Gramsci a lot and thinking about like the way that he wrote about hegemony was, was like oh, yeah. the ways that we consent to having power exerted on us and the things that make us consent to that and the way that sometimes as as we saw um with the george floyd protests right and particularly with things like the burning of the police precinct that sometimes those rules can flip and people can stop consenting to that power um and so yeah these are just like <laughs> short versions but a lot of the ways that that um i think about this and and that um i think more and more people are starting to think about it, right? And to realize that the institutions that that have power in our society and that are exercising it on us, like don't have to be this way. We don't have to have cops like this. We certainly don't have to have cops that shoot us all the time because I'm in England right now and the cops, the average cop on the street doesn't have a gun, which is a thing that you can do. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I guess I'm. what I'm getting at is, uh, you know, in my exploration of it, there... Mm when we're, I mean, like you said, we could go off into a million different directions and there are a million and one different tomes written about the subject of power. Mm. But I think like, I think, I think the definition itself of power gets really warped. And so, you know, mm. in your book, and we'll get into your book uh, quite a bit, you know, you, you'll, you'll describe folks, you know, coming to realize their power or coming to realize that they don't have power or, you know, and, and yeah. what I see that as being like that there's this societal warping of power in the sense mm -hmm. that actually what a lot of people call power and think of, of power is abuse and is control mm -hmm. and yeah. is extraction. And then, there to me is a more real definition of power, yeah. which is about being autonomous, feeling connected to yourself and other people yeah. in the world, you know, all of the mm -hmm. uh, Sylvia Frederici re-enchanting the world, you know, yeah. things I know you quote her quite a bit in the book, so I know you've read her. Yes. Um, and I think that a lot of times folks are afraid of power, but what it really right. is, is that they're um, they're reacting to abuse. So they yeah. don't know how to locate power yeah. within themselves. And I don't mean power in an abusive way. I mean, power in a connected, mm -hmm. autonomous, mm, sovereign, that's not quite the right word, but, you know, contained um, and yeah. connected to, to our own abilities. And I was hoping that, you know, in the book, 
you you outline all of these mm-hmm. ideas and and I was hoping if like you saw any commonalities yeah. in the folks you talked to who like discovered uh, the power with, we'll call it, right, you know, yeah. the, the empowered, um, yeah. if you sort of saw similarities to people sort of coming into connection with their own mm-hmm. personal positive power. Yeah, I think, I think another way to say that is, is like domination, right? That a lot of the experiences of power that we have is this kind of domination over us, right? And that is, again, that's the, the uncomfortable and unpleasant experience. And there's often a a reaction, like you said, to that, that says like, oh, well then having any power is bad actually. And I don't want to be like that. So I don't want to be anything. And like you mentioned Federici to talk about this in like a, a feminist lens, right? That there's sort of one tendency that tells us that in order for women to be powerful, we just have to act more like men have already been acting. But the actual thing we want to do is change those relations entirely. So nobody has the ability to dominate anybody else, not just sort of flip the script or allow a few women into the same kind of hierarchy that already exists and that already is crushing a lot of people. You know, one of the things, and I think you expressed it really well by saying like a lot of the experiences of the people that I write about in this book was them realizing that they didn't have power. Um, I wrote a few stories in the last couple of months about tech workers organizing. Mm-hmm. And there's a chapter on this in the book. And I've sort of, mm-hmm. you know, done more reporting since talking to workers who had been at Google or still are at Google. Right. One of the things that Meredith Whitaker, who used to work at Google and is now um, at the AI Now Institute at um, New York University, was saying was like, you know, we had to sort of go through this period where we thought as tech workers at Google or research workers at Google, that the company cared what we thought. And we thought that if we said, hey, we don't like this, that they would care about that and that they would listen to us. And we had to experience them not listening to us and just absolutely not caring and like working with the Trump administration and doing all of this awful stuff in order for us to realize that we had to do power a different way. Mm. So we had to organize differently. We had to bring public opinion to bear. We had to actually form a union like some workers at Google have done. We had to find a way that we could get together and find some sort of, another thing people say is counter power, right? To the Mm. thing that was actually running the show um, because it did not actually care if we asked it nicely. Right. And I, I, from my first book um, called Necessary Trouble, we ended up making prints to promote it that just said, we will not change the world by asking nicely, <laughs> which is, is very true. Um, and it's that kind of recognition that like the people who have this kind of, you know, power over us, right, in a variety of ways and political economic ways, um, they're not going to just give it up, right? Jeff Bezos is not just going to give it up. He's going to like fly to space or something. So, you know, maybe he'll stay there. Although I don't really want to inflict him on space either. (laughs) The moon deserves better than Jeff Bezos. Um, And like, you know, so we, we think about this as figuring out other ways to have power that don't feel toxic and don't feel painful and don't allow us even to sort of just replicate the bad things that have happened to us by doing the same thing to someone else, right? We don't want to just like invert the thing. We want to actually like tear the whole thing down. That's right. Absolutely. You know, the other thing I've been thinking about too um, for years is that and it's only because you mentioned Jeff Bezos and, you know, I was thinking about all of these um, mostly white cis men in power politically. Yeah. Um, I'm always like, they don't look happy. Like they don't like if this is what I'm supposed to want, you know, like yeah. they seem miserable. Like, can you imagine spending your time? trying to police other people's bodies, trying to take people's basic rights away. Can you imagine being so scared and so insecure and so full of hate? And I think that's like a big thing that I hope wish was talked about more. Like this isn't what we want when, cause when you're talking about like totally just tearing the system down, like why would we ever want to replicate in my only I can only speak for myself. In my opinion, these people just seem miserable. Yeah. Like they seem like they really need a lot of therapy. They seem like really <laughs> deranged. Like why would we want that? You know what I mean? Like yeah. why why is that why is that the goal? You know? 
Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's really like that. That's the thing, right? Is it like exercising power over people? Um, it's never sort of perfect. Like you would have to, I guess, like wipe out the population of the earth for that to be perfect. Right. Or like plug us all into the matrix for to have like perfect domination over everybody. So instead you're just dealing with this thing that people constantly fight back, right? Like the, the history of thanks, Marx, the history of all hitherto existing societies, blah, 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 is struggle. Like people always yeah. fight back when they're being ground down in a variety of ways. And like talking about Jeff Bezos, like the amount of effort that Amazon put into crushing the union in Alabama, right? Yeah. It's been so much money. These, you know, these anti-union law firms and consultants have contracts that are just like no maximum spend. Like they can literally just bill you for anything. And it just takes so much effort and so much work to actually keep people down. And that's exhausting. Mm -hmm. It's just exhausting. Like it, it, it really is. Um, and like, look, I don't, I have like the world's tiniest violin for Jeff Bezos's unhappiness, but like, think about the fact that like, I, I'm, I'm obsessed with the fact that like he and Elon Musk, like they just want to go to space. Right. And it's like, A, you kind of are just like, yeah, please go away. But also <laughs> the only thing they can imagine now is sort of more things to like, I mean, just the image of it, right? You literally just want to get into a big phallic symbol and shoot off into the sky like come on man <laughs> speaking of needing therapy like freud has some words for this this is the, yes but it's it's just that like you can't imagine like oh i've got enough money now i'm just gonna chill because there's never enough right like right there's, it's there's, just that's this, like, the thing ongoing sort of pathological need to like keep growing keep building keep whatever and like as many people have pointed out that is the ideology of cancer it's like metastasizing so it's also like completely yeah. unnatural you know right, like, exactly yeah yeah absolutely um so i'm like kind of curious there's like a couple things that i wanted to parse out is yeah, yeah. i found it really interesting that you literally started the book out by saying I love my work or like <laughs> I love what I do yeah. and I love my job you know I, I this yeah. is what I get to do um one like I'm just curious how did you get to a place in your life where you are able to say that <laughs> it depends on what day it is sure um, yeah I think you know one of the reasons that I wanted to write this book was to, to sort of say like yeah, the problem isn't your attitude, right? Like I do have a pretty cool job. I, I get to talk to people. I mean, I'm often talking to people about how much their life sucks. So that's like a lot less fun. But, you know, I get to talk to strangers and read books and read articles and like travel and meet new people all the time. And that's great. And I write, which is often really infuriating, but also um, <laughs> I do like doing it, or at least I like the end product when I have done it well. And, um, and that took years of my life, right? Like after college, I had no idea what the hell I was doing. And I was working in restaurants and being miserable and being sexually harassed by creepy managers and all of the things that happen when you work in the service industry, um, scraping gum off the undersides of tables yep. for $2.13 an hour. That's right. Yeah, like 10 years of my life, I was a waitress. Yeah, great. And like, you know, it sucked and I don't ever want to go back to it. And I really appreciate like all of the headlines now that are like, oh, nobody wants to come back to work in the service industry. I wonder why. I can't imagine why. I can. I can imagine exactly why. Because I still have nightmares about working in the service industry. It has been 14 years, 15 years. It's 2021. Yeah, it's been 15 years since I worked in a restaurant. I still dream about it. Wow. What the hell, right? Oh, I um, don't anymore. Jeez. Oh, oh my good. dear. That's I'm good. sorry. I hope I haven't jinxed you. I used, when I worked in it, I would have nightmares. I would like- Dress dreams. I would like get off my shift, go right to bed because I was like closing or whatever. And then I'd have the nightmare of like the nightmare shift and I'd like wake up and I'd be like, oh no, like table 14 needs more buns or whatever. But yeah. so I, I, that is like such a particular nightmare. Like it's such mm -hmm. a particular flavor. You're like in the weeds, you can't get this. Like this person's yelling at you. Like, yeah, yeah. So you said, so sorry, I'm, yeah, I'm interrupting. No, I apologize. It, no, no, no. It's fine. We, we look to all the service industry workers out there listening. We feel your pain. We feel it so hard. Um, yeah, I ended up going back to grad school because I could not figure out how to like work my way up into being a writer. And I went to journalism school and um, was pretty good. 
And I had saved some money by then by from all of my time doing crappy service jobs and was able to actually take internships that I could not do when I was an undergrad because I was doing crappy service industry jobs back then too. And yeah, and so I finally um, finished grad school in 2009. That was a great year to be trying to find a job. The global economy was on fire. Um, <laughs> despite all of that, managed to find a job. And, and you know, like I still don't make a ton of money, um, but I am stable at this point, thanks to support from the Type Media Center and selling two books. And it's mm. good. And I get to do this stuff, which is often very, very tiring. Um, yeah. Yeah, I did all that work to get out of the service industry. And then I had creepy sexual harassing bosses in the journalism industry. And <laughs> I was still broke a lot of the time and stressed out yeah. and doing three jobs. And so a lot of the conditions that I had had in the service industry hmm. just followed me into a new industry. And then I was yes. like, oh, right. Because like the, you know, I will never say that like my conditions have not improved in this period of time. Like I am doing much better than I was. That said, like that doesn't make it just like all better now. Um, last week I interviewed one of the workers from the New Yorker who was part of the union and they were yeah. about ready to go on strike. Um, her name is Julie Ostfield. And she was saying, I was just asking like, you know, how does it feel to get to like the dream job, right? Like the New Yorker is just like That's, goals yeah. for everybody in the industry and then have to bargain for two and a half years and threaten to go on strike just to get like, a halfway decent base salary. I mean, they want a lot more than that, actually. The union got a really great contract, but like- Oh, that's great. Some of the stuff they were asking for was pretty basic. Mm -hmm. And you're like, The New Yorker is this, you know, incredibly prestigious magazine. And it was starting people, like, you know, starting salaries were barely high enough to like pay for an apartment share in New York. And people are, again, doing multiple jobs to pay the rent. And so, you know, I realized that like a lot of these problems aren't about whether you love the job, you know, they're about like the mm -hmm. broader conditions of work under capitalism that we can't mm -hmm. solve individually. And even though like I would have politically told you that answer long before I became a journalist full-time, it was still different to sort of have realized it personally and realized that this was not only just like an experience that I'd had, but actually a lens yeah. through which to look at work. Yes. Is that realization that like, oh, you get to the dream job and work still sucks because work is still work. And I think that's really what we're seeing. I mean, if anything with this pandemic, and also I'm thinking a lot about how people who have, in quote, dream jobs like Naomi Osaka or yeah. I, of course I always bring up like Megan and Harry although that's like so out there <laughs> far removed I mean but like people who've like in quotes you're like people fantasize about you yeah. know that this kind of job and they're they're coming out and saying actually like this isn't that great you know I have mental yeah. health problems and like you know this isn't I, like that's what I find really yeah fascinating about this time where mm -hmm. you know you're you're just sort of seeing the stressors of of any kind of i mean not to get too existential but any kind of existence under late capitalism where yeah. relationships are transactional mm -hmm. um everyone feels a bit precarious uh there's always some sort of trade-off, you know, and like, I've mm -hmm. seen that. I mean, like for me, I won't get to, this isn't like a therapy session, so I won't get too far <laughs> into it, but it is one thing that has happened to me. That's been quite weird. Like you, very similar story, mm -hmm. uh, waitress uh, since I was 13 or 14. And then I stopped, mm -hmm. went into more white collar jobs, worked for some very famous places, became a designer and then went into business for myself um, yeah. as doing something really weird, which is I mostly am a, I'm a writer and I run a business and I sell things and teach. And I also am like a psychic. Uh, so there's all of that there. But anyway, one, the weird thing that's happened as I've like worked for myself, you know, right. like in quotes, like I run my own business, I am the business right. is how I've really started both trying to like parse out all of the things you talk about in your book of like mm -hmm. feeling grateful that I have a job feeling like uh, and then feeling like overly identified with my work mm -hmm. 
figuring out where do I end and where does my work begin? Like mm-hmm. all of these boundaries within myself, even it's yeah. not just like, Oh, I, I clock out at seven. It's like, who am I? If I never like all of these things. And I'm wondering if like, yeah, you saw some similar, I mean, have you seen a lot of similarities with, with your workers and, and if you kind of have had your own kind of um, realizations, especially as you were writing work mm-hmm. won't love you back. Yeah. I mean, I joke that I wrote this book to like teach myself how to say no to things. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a real struggle because like part of my job, you're like, I'm writing a book. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. No, like part of my job is to write about, again, like I said, like how other people's work sucks, right. Or other awful things that are happening in the world, like the police killing people and, and, you know, the government cutting unemployment benefits for millions of people because they want to force people back to take shitty service jobs. Um, and that kind of thing, like will remind you how good you have it. And it does sort of instill that like, yeah, I have it pretty good feeling, um, which isn't necessarily terrible. And also like it will make you feel a whole mess of, of responsibility and guilt and gratitude and also confusion <laughs> and just a, a whole lot of things, right? Because you're like, I want to be proud of myself for the work that I've done. And I am, but also um, how much of that is privilege? How much of that is luck? How much of that is is meeting the right people at the right time? How many other people out there could do what I do if they had the opportunities that I'd had? Um, but then again, you know, I'm also surrounded by people who had a lot more opportunities than I did and consequently are making a lot more money than I am. And so, you know, you, you sort of have to, well, you have to let go of comparing yourself to people. Thanks. But also like, compare and despair, Sarah, compare and despair. But right. But like, it, it's, um, yeah, you do have to like figure out how to have boundaries around yourself and around your time and around your friendships and your relationships and your anything that matters to you that like, sometimes I'm just like, I don't want to monetize this, which is like what the Mm -hmm. freelance hustle can do for everything. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, like now everybody's got a newsletter. Well, I've had a newsletter for a while because I'm a freelance journalist, but like, should I like monetize my newsletter? Should I do like this thing or that thing? Oh, I really loved this movie. Should I write pitch an article about this movie? Or can I just like have watched a movie and enjoyed it? You know, it's total same. Like how, but how do you figure out what, so I have my own, like I'll subvert certain things or all my whole thing is all like, there's certain things I just want to give out for free. And mm-hmm. there's certain things I keep just for myself. Like I will never teach about, for example, my particular way that I unfold Judaism into my witchcraft. Like, yeah. I'm like, I don't, that's for me. Like, that's for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm wondering, like, how do you decide, like you said, like this movie, you're like, I have a lot of great ideas about this movie. When do you decide that it's just a good conversation with a friend? Yeah. And when it is a pitch? I mean, these days, I'm honestly, like, I'm trying to take a little bit of a break from things because this winter, because of combination of lockdown and book launch and lockdown book launch, which was like so much of just like chatting to somebody on the other end of a video screen, right? Um, I did so many of these from January to April that I was just like, I need a break. Mm -hmm. I need a real break. And so Mm -hmm. now I'm down to a point of doing like a couple a week rather than like two or three a day. Um, And I'm trying to like slow down and to do things like I wrote myself some work rules at the beginning of the summer. So I'm in, in London for three months and change. And um, when I got here, I sat down, I was like, okay, so my work rules, here's what I need to do. I need to, and I put them on one of those like virtual sticky notes on my desk. And it was like no more than two podcast or video events a week. I'm taking summer Fridays. I am giving myself a four day week for the summer. Um, you know what I've learned so far about mm-hmm. that is it makes Mondays suck even more. <laughs> but other than that, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> And I just wrote myself like a, a number that I'm not doing articles for less money than. Yes, um, yes. And then to schedule things like reading, reading books as part of my work day and Ooh. not as just like, because it's part of my job, right? Like I have to read, right. I read a hundred and some odd books to write Work Won't Love You Back. Um, that's part of my job. And yet I consider like, oh, my work day, if I'm not spending like at least eight hours in front of my computer, I'm not working enough. 
Oh but then it was gosh. like, okay, so I'd be spending X amount of time in front of my computer. Then I'm doing book launch things, which definitely expands beyond the end of the normal work day, doing evening events, doing podcasts at like all sorts of hours. I had to do live radio in the UK when I was in New York. So I had to be up at 5 a.m. one day because it was a BBC program and we didn't want to tell them no. And so I dragged myself out right. of bed at 5 a.m. to be on the radio. And it's just like... Whew reminding myself that a lot of the stuff that I, I think of as something I have to do in my off time is actually part of my job. And that it's fine to do that between the hours of like nine and six, right. you know, that I'm not slacking. Um, and so, yeah, like I, I literally had to write this stuff down for myself, 41 years old, two books out. And one of the books is about how work sucks. So yeah. I'm still constantly, constantly, figuring out what the boundaries are and they're going to be different for everyone. Um, and that's just, you know, it is what it is, but it's, it's really, um, yeah, it's worked for me to just figure out like what I can make rules about that are hard and fast because everything else is a negotiation all the time. That's the thing, you know, I'm teaching this class, it's called embodying abundance. And Ooh. whenever I teach a class, it's like, I'm doing the class. So I'm in it. And I'm like, yeah. having all this stuff come up. And as I'm talking about it, and you know, I'm at, we're at, um, we're at scarcity week this week. Mm. And as I was doing, you know, research or thinking for the lecture, you know, really, uh, in this, again, this is all just like listening to what you're saying. And, and, just yeah. wanting to share a little bit, you know, I'm like, oh, well, scarcity is basically white capitalist, wh white supremacist capitalism. Like that's mm -hmm. basically scarcity. It's that, yeah. you know, you're never enough. You're never going to have enough. Everything is precarious. Uh, right. You have to do certain things to survive. You know, everyone else is a competition. Um, you know, mm -hmm. all of these things that we, that we internalize. And I think that as you were talking about when you were saying, okay, I'm creating these rules for myself, right? You know, everything else is a negotiation with other people, but for myself, I need to have, I need to at least experiment with yeah. these rules. You know, I think that's sort of this place that we have to all come to personally, whether you're working a nine to five, whether you're like my partner works 13 hour days as a nurse, like whether yeah. you work part time, whether you're in the home whether you're on disability, whatever that looks like for you, I think like deciding and then spending time allowing yourself to relax into that decision without mm -hmm. like somatic fear, because we carry the fear, like no one will be in the room. As you said, Sarah, I really relate to what you're saying because like no one will be in the room with me. And I'm like, but I have to work for another hour or like, I can't stop. It's five. Like I should yeah. work for another hour. You know, we have these yeah. self, you know, reflexive, really embedded reactions that we have that yeah. started as probably a trauma response started at, with survival. And no matter where we are, I think we have to constantly be sort of yeah. pushing back or at least having curiosity. Well, why do I think that? Or, right. you know, why am I doing it this way? Like, you know, especially for people who work for, for other people, like, right. why am I hustling? Why am I showing up early? Why? Like you right. talk about this in the book, like yeah. people, you know, feeling like they have to work until, you know, 10 and there's these workplace yeah. cultures of all of that. So I just wanted to like highlight that. I'm really glad you brought that up about yourself because I know so many people who can relate. I'm sure everyone listening. And I think that's like the body and the self is where we have to start mm -hmm unraveling and untangling our internal our internal subconscious or our internal programming around yeah. this and then be like oh I was able to go three months with summer Friday and like I like no one died like I'm okay like yeah. you know like and and then you're like okay what else can I try and you can just sort of do it at your own pace as an mm -hmm. own experiment oh summer Friday actually didn't work I really do have to be you know working five yeah. days or okay well how do I money, whatever it is yeah right? whatever it is you know I think that that's like this site of freedom like within the self and I wanted to um wanted yeah. to read this passage from your book uh, because it just reminds me of what we were talking about mm. work has not brought us liberation freedom or even much joy 
There are occasional pleasures to be had on the job. Certainly, as a writer, I take pride in a well-turned sentence, and as a reporter, I thrill to a good interview. Even as a restaurant server, I enjoy the occasional chat with a regular customer. I am not arguing that we should strive to be miserable at work. Quite the contrary. We should take any opportunity for happiness, pleasure, and connection that we get. I do believe, however, that our desire for happiness at work is one that has been constructed for us, and the world that constructed that desire is falling apart around us. As it does so, we suddenly have space to think about a different world and what we might want once it is here. So I'm, you know, you're referring to the pandemic and what that has mm-hmm. done to everyone's work life. And I was hoping you could kind of, you know, share you you wrote this book, you began it, I'm assuming pre-pandemic. You oh, yes. wrote it in a pandemic. You yeah. released it in a pandemic and you're still working and writing about the workplace in these times while the pandemic isn't over. And so like, are you noticing trends uh, in the workplace that now that we're in this in-between stage of not, you know, we're, we're still in a pandemic, but we're not, um, it's not as bad as it was. And we're hopefully moving towards, um, you know, getting out of it more. What are some ways that you've sort of seen how this has shaped workplace culture in in the US? What are kind of the big takeaways you've been sort of noticing? Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing really is that I finished writing the book um, the end of February 2020 and turned it in. And then by the time, of course, my editor got my edits back to me, it was two months into a pandemic and I had to go back and re-interview everyone and like add a whole bunch of stuff. But it really, um, I didn't have to change the direction of anything because of the pandemic. I just sort of everything sped up. And interestingly, this was also true of writing my first book where I was covering these social movements and I was like, had been arguing with editors like, no, this is really significant. And then as I was working on the book, it would blow up to way bigger than it had been before. Um, And so I was like, I'm right. I just, it's way more than I thought it was. Um, And it's like absolutely true of like work in the pandemic, right? Like I already mentioned this um, apparent trend of, of service workers not wanting to go back to service work, which again, can you blame us? Um, can you blame anyone for not wanting to go back to service work? I hope I never have to. Um, there's more conversations about the already sort of blurry and screwy boundaries between work and home, right? Because mm-hmm. I've been working from home more or less pretty much entirely since 2010, which was the last time I had a job that I had an office. In some of that time, I've had staff jobs, but they haven't been in a place that I haven't been living in the place where their office was. So I was working from home where I was, um, or I've been freelance. So, you know, suddenly everybody joined me in work from home life, right? Um, But that looks really different depending on what your home life looks like, right? So um, during the early pandemic, I was living with flatmates. Um, I am now doing so again, although now we're allowed to leave the house, which is very nice. Not that I don't love my flatmates, they're lovely, (laughs) but um, leaving the house is is also nice. Being able to take a break from each other is very conducive to healthy relationships, any kind of relationship, no matter who or what. Um, And, you know, other people who had like small children at home, who then like the schools are closed. I know people who are teachers who are literally trying to teach their class over Zoom while having their own children in the house, Mm -hmm. just like, pandemonium. Um, Yeah. So all of these experiences have really made people think about the different ways we take work home. And like you were talking about the sort of embodiedness of it, like how we sort of carry our work everywhere and the way, and one of the things that I write about a lot in in the book is the way that like certain jobs, which may have been like very sort of physically demanding and taxing, nevertheless didn't require much from you mentally or emotionally. And so it was easier to mentally and emotionally clock out at the end of the day, but physically they would take a really intense toll on you. I just finished reading this wonderful book about the guy who was the second in command at the oil, chemical, and atomic workers union for a very long time. So you want to talk about horrible things work does to your body. Um, Mm. I've just been reading about a lot of them. Mm. But now it's harder to clock out because work demands more emotional and mental labor. We were already talking about like the service work dreams, but, you know, being 
a journalist means a lot of emotional engagement with people. Um, mm -hmm. I am sure that being um, teaching and doing, you know, reading tarot cards for people it requires a lot of emotional investment from you that's hard to turn off. And especially when then you turn around and do those things for yourself. You're like, oh, I'm reading a book for fun. Ah, you know, again, these things get all really knotted up inside of us. And so we're thinking really hard now about like, how do we have those boundaries yeah. in a way that I think um, working from home had already grown in recent years, but now that like a third of the workforce has had the experience of it, we can actually have a real conversation about it in a way that, that I think we couldn't before. And yeah, I just think there's more understanding and more sort of willingness to say that work is killing us in a variety of ways. Um, and that even sort mm -hmm. of quote unquote good work is doing that too, right? We don't have to work in a chemical factory, but nevertheless, work is still bad for you and it's bad for your body as well as whatever. I'm sitting here as we talk, like rolling my shoulders back because it's the end of my work day here in England. And um, yeah, I've listeners at home, day. roll your shoulders back, listeners. Right. Like, Do a little right. stretching. Yeah. Reopen everything. Open up. Up, right? <laughs> yeah. So, and, and so, right. Like the ways in which this stuff just like really does get into you and shape how you react to everything. Now that you're, yeah, I wanted, you know, this wasn't one of my original questions, but I, I just love listening to you and going off that in the book, you know, you, you really do explore the different ways that work or the way that culture has like indoctrinated us to be really, um, you know, overly invested, as you said, in our work. Can you talk, can you, do you mind just sharing with the listeners yeah. and obviously you go much deeper into it in the book and everyone needs to get the book. Can you just share a little bit the main ways you noticed work or that what, what we are told to believe about work ourselves and how that kind of keeps us hapless or in an unhealthy relationship with work? Yeah. I mean, the, the very short version of this is um, that this idea that we should love our jobs is actually not that old. Um, and it started in certain kinds of work that are broadly like creative work where you're supposed to sort of enjoy the work itself because you get to make art for a living and women's work, right? Caring work that is closely related to the work that women do in the home. So I start out the book talking about the unpaid work that is still done mostly by women in the home and building up through that, through all of these other caring industries. And then the second half of the book, I start with creative work and the narratives that are told to us around creative work and the starving artist who will, you know, like work until they die because they just love making art so much. And if they don't do it, then they will die. Um, and the way these two sort of narratives come together in a variety of ways, right? So, you know, the caring worker story is that you do what you do out of selflessness and love for the people that you're taking care of um, or teaching or, you know, whether you're a nurse, like you mentioned, your partner is a nurse, like the narrative around nursing is always that nurses are just in it because they love people so much. It sort of leaves out the brain work part of nursing, which is also really difficult. Um, and it just assumes that like, nurses never have any needs or demands for themselves because they just care so much. That's what their job is. It's caring so much, right? And similarly, we kind of talk this way about teachers, right? Especially teachers of small children. Um, and the smaller the kids, the lower the pay, which seems backwards to me because small children terrify me. Like I can talk to adults. I don't know what to do with a three-year-old. Uh, <laughs> children children are scary, man. Um, <laughs> and like, the, yeah, so the, the, the like story of, you know, teachers in the pandemic, right, was like mm. teachers should go back to school because if they won't get back in the classroom, then they're just selfish. And don't they love the kids? And they're like, yeah, but not enough to die. Yeah. And then on the other side, right, the, the creative work story, you know, that leaks into all sorts of things. So I talked to video game programmers who were just, you know, they, they have so much unpaid overtime in the industry that they've got a cute name for it. They call it crunch because it's just like you're just expected to crunch for up to like 100 hours a week mm. before a game comes out, which is just bonkers, right? Like mm -hmm. that's so much work. And the story is just like, oh, but it's cool. You get to do this cool job and it's creative and it's fun and we're making games. Aren't games cool and fun? So therefore the work must be cool and fun. And it's like, 
man, you're still programming. You're still like, you know, right. fiddling with like nitpicky lines of code for hours on end. Like that is definitely not the same thing as playing video games all day. Um, and no. so like all of these stories, right, were so interesting. And what was really fascinating to me, actually, thinking about the video game programmers is the way these narratives like cross over industries. Mm. So I, I expected for people in caring industries to be told, oh, we're like a family. I didn't expect it as much to come from the video games companies, but sure mm. enough, the video game companies are all like, we're a family. There's one company that literally brands itself as a fampany. I remember you. Yeah, that was ridiculous. Yeah. And it's, it's so, you know, the family is just like used as this, this way to compel people to work more. Um, and these are, these are narratives that have histories, right? And those yeah. histories um, help us to understand why these are not narratives we should actually feel like that we have to believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you also talk about some terms I had never heard before, but had yeah. definitely experienced uh, one of those being hope labor. Yes. What is what is hope labor? Yeah, so I discovered that term. Um, it's from communication scholars Kathleen Kuhn and Thomas Corrigan, who are they were writing about, I believe, bloggers and like people who started sort of blogging and and using social media in an effort to eventually get paid to do journalism, right? Which is also a thing that I did for years. Spoiler alert, it didn't work out very well. But internships, which I did do, which actually did like very much do much more for me in terms of like helping me get to where I am today, um, are also hope labor, right? You're also doing them often for free or for very little money in the hopes that you will get hired or you will get, you meet somebody who helps you get somewhere, which like, again, like did happen for me. And this is, is true in so many places, right? When we, you mentioned Naomi Osaka earlier, right? Like how much training does somebody who right. is a professional athlete have to do as a child, mm -hmm. right? In order to get to the level that Naomi Osaka is at now, where she's one of the best in the world. Um, you know, that's a whole lot of uncompensated work or college athletes who still don't get paid. And there is a Supreme Court decision about this today that they will still not be getting paid. And that's all, you know, it's justified with you have the hopes of getting into the NBA or the NFL or whatever and get to be mm -hmm. a pro. So, you know, you just keep doing the work in hopes that eventually you'll get paid for it, which if we stop and think about it is like a really screwed up way to operate the world because <laughs> it's just sure a way to convince is. people to do more free work in order to like earn the right to get paid to do a job. Sure what? is. I mean, I even think about, you know, how in generally in the freelance world, you submit your invoice after you've spent mm -hmm. weeks, sometimes months, and then sometimes it's like a 30 day or a 60 day. Yeah. And you're like, what? You know, like, yeah. it's just, it's, it's interesting, you know, like what I really got from the book is it's exciting that people are starting to organize more and more. Mm -hmm. It's exciting that people are um, it seems at least, or at the very least, maybe there's just been more media attention around it, but yeah. it seems as though there's, you know, more people willing to come together, uh, and to explore ways, different ways of working, um, you know, and that's really exciting. And also it seems as though there is this, it seems more normalized. I feel like your book is your book really came out at the most opportune time. I mean, I probably didn't feel that way in a pandemic. <laughs> timing is everything, right? I, I, well, I mean, anyone who released anything in a pandemic, I released a book yeah. in a pandemic, and it's no. like, do not recommend. You know, no. I do but not it, recommend but, doing anything in a pandemic, really, I other than exactly. like crawling into bed, putting a pillow over your head, and waiting for it to be over. Exactly. Uh, but this is a perfect time for it. And that also, yeah. again, why I think folks should pick it up so they can really, they can really acquaint themselves with the history and, and what is actually happening. Because a lot of times we feel like these things are invisible, or mm -hmm. also, we feel like we're alone. We feel like right. we're alone in what exactly. we're experiencing. And you definitely outlined that in the book as well, you know, around mm -hmm. people keeping people separate from each other. And, right. uh, you know, also like, uh, social norms around not discussing salary and, you know, all of those kinds of things that employers 
purposely try to do, you know, to try to yeah. kind of keep people doing what they're doing. Um, so, so yeah, I think like more and more folks are thinking about changing, you know, their conditions. And I think that's really great. I also, I just have a couple more questions. I, um, the book is super thorough. Like it's like super (laughs) thorough. You go through so much. I learned so much. It gave me so much to think about. It's definitely the kind of book where I feel like I have to like reread again. You know, the first time was just sort of the first pass and I kind of have to reread again. There were a couple things I didn't, I was like kind of expecting to see covered, but I didn't like, um, sex work, prison labor, you know, Mm. more undocumented kinds of labor. And I was wondering, Mm. I know it's like the hardest, I'm sure what you left out of the book was probably as much as, you know, as exactly, right? Like, uh, for those of you listening, uh, Sarah, basically pantomime, like a, like a several Bibles worth of of paper. (laughs) So I was just wondering if (laughs) at least as many chapters. Yeah. I mean, these are both interesting questions, right? Because I, um, I start the book with unpaid work in the home, right? So I, I very much am like the workplace is a complicated question that is not just like one place where you go to get a wage. Um, and like part of it was just like, okay, if I do, this chapter, then this other thing is going to sort of overlap a lot with that. And so at some point it was just a matter of like, how does this narrative sort of move forward through the things that are um, more and more like the dominant forms of work today? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, talking about sex work, which is absolutely um, crucial. And, and, and I'm actually doing an event in a couple of weeks with Heather Berg, who wrote a book called Porn Work, which is researching the working conditions in the porn industry. And mm. Heather is fantastic. I recommend her book highly. And I'm really looking forward to getting to like talk about some of the stuff because talk about the, the labor of love discourse, right? Is like, oh, you're having sex for money on camera. That must be really fun, right? No, often it sucks. Also, often two people do like it. Um, and this is a thing that like, you know, my friend Melissa Gira Grant, who's like one of my closest colleagues, um, has, you know, written a wonderful book called Playing the Whore, which talks about specifically the work of sex work. And she also wrote an article a while ago called Happy Hookers that sort of took on specifically this this way that like sex workers are sort of questioned about their happiness in a way that few other workers are right that like if i say like yeah i had a really shit day at the job when i was waiting tables nobody decides that they need to therefore abolish restaurants you know but like if you say oh my god i'm really exhausted i had a really crap day on the porn set or at the strip club or at whatever like that becomes like fodder for a moral panic rather than like oh workers need more rights and so I think that's um, that's a really interesting thing that that would have been really interesting to get into um, in terms of, again, like questioning what is a workplace and what is work mm-hmm. and also like the affective relationships we're supposed to have with the things that we do and this this complicated notion of like things that we do for fun can also be work and the things that we do for right. love can also be work. And that, you know, that is, is absolutely like attention that's really, really important to understand and sort of why I start the book off with like, I love my job is like, yeah, I Mm. do enjoy writing. And I do, you know, have a stack of notebooks around here that I just write in my journal every morning. Um, But the question is like, is the power structures again, that we're operating under that make those things into work because we have to make a living rather than like we have a fully free choice to engage in everything because solely because it's our pleasure right because unless unless you are jeff bezos or elon musk um they have no excuses because they definitely don't ever have to work again um the rest of us have to figure out compromises in order to keep existing under capitalism. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so solutions in the in the <laughs> book, you talk a lot about organizing. You talk a lot about unionizing. You cover yeah. that. Um, you talk about, you know, obviously, I know this book is really making an offering in the sense of encouraging people to unpack the purpose of life or purpose of uh, the Freudian slip, the purpose of yeah, well, you know. <laughs> the purpose of work in their life and and all of these things and also you underscore 
that you don't have to love work. Like it's right. okay if work is just something that you do. It is okay that it's okay if your purpose is found elsewhere. Uh, we don't have to love our work, you know. So I'm wondering if you're seeing more and more solutions or you're seeing more and more examples um, that, you know, especially now after you've released the book, um, you know, and I'm wondering if you have more suggestions or advice Mm -hmm. for someone listening uh, of how to navigate and negotiate this tension as you spoke about. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really hard, right? Because in, in, figuring out how to sort of conclude the book, right? It's like, well, I could write like five policy prescriptions, right? And Mm -hmm. like, there are a lot of people out there who do that. I have friends who run think tanks who do that, who put out policy about work and how we should do less of it all the time. And yet I sort of didn't want to do that. Um, And, you know, in in every chapter, I, I sort of focus on one worker and then I talk to them about the organizing they did at their job and the demands that they made and the ways that that worked out for them. And that I was kind of like, okay, these, these people are actually like answering that question in a way, right? Like here are the demands that they would like to have met. Um, and instead I just wanted to write about like, what would life actually be like if we thought about other things than work as important? I think that even more than when I started writing that book and finishing that concluding chapter in February of 2020, before I knew Mm. that the world was about to end. I do think that like pandemic year has really made us rethink what is important, partly because of like the few things that we could still do. And partly, at least for me, because I spent most of last winter, like locked up alone. Mm. I thought a lot about what I missed. Oh, I thought a lot about what I missed. I really missed live music. I really missed group gatherings with friends. Like I had dinner at a friend's house yesterday and it was just like four of us. And I was like, oh, you know what's awesome about this? I don't have to hold up the conversation. I can just like listen (laughs) to you brilliant people talk to each other for a little while and like take a breather. This is cool. Like I didn't realize how stressful having all your interactions suddenly become one-on-one and a lot of them being like digitally mediated actually made like social interaction. And yeah. And like, again, for me, like when all I could do all winter was work, I am just like so done with work. <laughs> and yeah. I think that there are a lot of people who like, right. My friend, um, a friend of mine was joking. Cause I was just like, you got a new job. You had a book come out and you're having a baby. Like He's like, yeah, it's ama- it's amazing what you can accomplish when fun is banned. And I was just like, wow. you're so right though. Like, you know, it's like, well, what else was I going to do all winter? It's like, I was going to finish my book, apply for jobs, plan to have a baby. Great. Good for him. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, and I, again, I can still talk about things like um, putting the four day week into law. That would be great. I'm really excited about the mm. um, child tax credit and the the first Biden rescue plan that like just gives people refundable tax credits for childcare, right? Not just like to pay to childcare, but just like, here's money because you have a kid because like having a kid is hard work. And also like, because as a society, we actually have an investment in you having a safe, happy, secure child or multiple children, Um, especially because, you know, not that long ago, they took all that away from people with welfare reform. So, you know, I think we're seeing, again, not just sort of interpersonal conversations, but like policy question conversations that are actually saying like, huh, we actually like have got it wrong. And actually we're maybe valuing the wrong thing. So I think it's Mm -hmm. Spain that's like trialing a four day week as people sort of return to work. And yeah, like stuff like that is awesome, right? You're just like, oh, wow. Yeah, great. Like a lot of people got laid off. A lot of people need jobs. If everybody works less, then we can distribute Mm -hmm. the jobs more evenly Mm -hmm. and we can all have more time off to have fun. That'd be cool, right? Yeah. So I think I think we're in a moment. Um, Arundhati Roy said sort of early on in the beginning that like the pandemic is a portal, right? And the question is, is where is that going to take us? Mm-hmm. And hopefully we can push, use some of that power together and uh, push it in the right direction. Yes, yes. I wanted to end by just reading uh, another passage from the book that I thought was really beautiful. Creation, play, love, all these are human desires, perhaps even human needs that have been enclosed, commodified, sold back to us. 
While we have to do our jobs for a living, it makes sense to make demands for better conditions. But alongside those demands, we should always be making demands to reclaim our time. What would we be able to create without the constraints of making a living? As Marx wrote so long ago, and not that long ago at all, the realm of freedom really begins only where labor determined by necessity and external expediency ends. Part of the joy is the risk. And then you go on to say, the work itself only matters as a way to connect. All the labors of love, stripped of the capitalist impulse to make money, fame, and power, are really at bottom attempts to connect to other people. They are attempts to be bigger and better than our lonely little selves. Even the most solitary artist's creations are, in a way, a request to be seen, to be known. Stripped of the need to fight to survive, how much more connection could we create? How much more could we try to know each other? I just thought that was really beautiful, and I hope that folks listening can pick up the book, thinking about some of those beautiful questions. I just, is there anything else you'd like to like to add, like to say? Yeah, I'm just excited to spend more time with people now, right? That's uh, what I was thinking about when I wrote that, and it's even mm-hmm. more true now. Um, yeah, if people want to follow me on Twitter, I'm Sarah with an H L Jaffe, J A F F E. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been great. And it's so much fun to hear somebody else reading my words and be like, wow, I'm actually all right at this thing. Right. You're like, you know, I stand by this paragraph. You're like, yeah, I love that. That was pretty good. I wrote that. It's great. It's a great book. It is called Work Won't Love You Back. The link to this will be in the show notes. Thank you so much, Sarah, and have a beautiful day. It was so great to connect. Thank you. You too. Okay, my loves. That's our episode for today. Thank you so much for listening, for subscribing, for supporting the show on Patreon. I could not do this without you. I am sending everyone so many blessings, so much love, more food for thought, and until soon. Bye! Moonbeaming is brought to you by The Moon Studio. It is created and hosted by me, Sarah Faith Godestiner. It is edited by the incredible Caitlin George Parker. Additional support is by Stella Hartman. Music is by Will Owen and myself. If you like this podcast, you can support us by going to Patreon backslash The Moon Studio and becoming a patron. You can give this podcast five stars wherever you listen and also subscribe. We'd love it if you could let one or two or three or four or more friends know about us and we accept all good vibes. Thanks so much for supporting us. Which is in the ocean's way.